You're listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast with Ian Tullock and Anthony Petrielli. Welcome to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast. My name is Ian Tullock. I'm here with Anthony Petrielli. And Anthony, we brought a guest with us today. Who's going to be joining us? Yeah, Kevin, you want to introduce yourself? It's not much to introduce. Kevin Papetti. I'm also a writer at Maple Leafs Hot Stove. And I think I'm the president of the Mikel Granlin slash Taylor Hall fan club. So hoping for a trade here during the podcast, but we'll see what happens. That'll be we awesome. Are, we are going to debate Taylor Hall to be sure. And we've been doing it for a few podcasts now, but uh, what's another voice? I feel like I'm going to get outnumbered on this one, but I'm okay <laughs> with that. But before we get to trades and without talking too much shit about, you know, the fact that the Leafs are barely playing again this week and how not this weekend, but next weekend, they don't play on Saturday night, which is a sin. Ian, you might recall last podcast, I mentioned that cup teams, cup winners, usually have an easy series. So I went back and looked this up because you were kind of curious and you're like, really? I never thought about this. Yeah, I tried pushing back on it just because it sounded like one of those arguments that people make without any evidence. But I like that you went back and actually dug up some evidence here. So let's see what you got. I am a man of the people, if nothing else. So... Since 2010, 11 Stanley Cup winners. Only one team has won the Cup without having a five-game or lower series. Do you know what team that is? The Blackhawks? No. Tampa last year? No. Because Tampa beat Columbus in five. I figured the Blackhawks had a good chance just because they've won three of the last 11 or whatever it is. (laughs) No, they almost always had an easy series. They actually had two series in five uh, in one. They had a second round sweep of Minnesota in the other. And they had a four-game sweep of San Jose in the Western Conference Finals in their first one. But that was an incredible playoff year. It was actually St. Louis when they won their cup. So they played at least, what, six games they, in every series? They had, two game, they had two series where they went to six, and they had two series that went to seven. And it kind of surprised me because I actually thought that they made tidy work of Winnipeg. It felt like they did, but they didn't. That series went to six, and most of those games were a lot closer in the score than I actually remembered. But other than that, uh, every team had at least one five-game series. A few of them mixed in sweeps. Really, my general point is you usually need to have a quick and easy round because one of the things that, and Kyle Dubas just referenced this in his midseason press conference, so to speak, is uh, you have an injury every round. But if you can have a quick playoff win, a four or five game series at some point, it definitely, you know, helps your ability to not get a guy injured. Right? Those extra rest, rest stays, I'd imagine, that would help with anyone. For example, this year, Austin Matthews with the wrist injury. Any extra rest you can get that guy is just gravy at this point, right? You have older veterans like Joe Thornton. You look at the goaltending situation, whether it's a Jack Campbell or a Frederick Anderson. I think my theory when it comes to the goaltending, I'm sure this is something we're going to discuss, but if the Leafs do go on to make a run in the playoffs, I think both goaltenders are going to have a win in the playoffs. That's going to be my theory here is that it's not just going to be one goaltender riding out the entire series, the entire playoffs. We've seen this with a bunch of different teams, but you tend to need at least two goalies to make it all the way through a playoff run. And even though Anderson, believe it or not, hasn't been playing well the last, we could say a couple games, we could say a couple months, we could say last year and a half, really ever since his groin injury last season, there's a stark downtick in performance. If you look at him, but if we're looking at this Leafs team and we're trying to project moving forward, what are they going to be? Uh, Kevin, I'm curious what your latest takeaways are because that's what we try to do in this podcast. We don't just to what happened yesterday or the game before. We're trying to look at some larger trends here and try to make some accurate assessments. I've been a big fan of your stuff for a while here. So say something that we're going to disagree with because we got to get into some good conversations here. What have you got, Kevin? <laughs> I'm pretty happy with them overall right now. Like I know it's been a rough stretch, but – I just feel like a lot of that's been goaltending, specifically the other team's goaltending. Now, Freddie hasn't been his best as of late. I know he's dealing with an injury, but like overall, they're, they're generally outplaying their opponents over the last, pretty much the whole season. And I think once they make that one last move, this is going to be a pretty good team. Like it, this is the happiest I've been with the defense in a while. I know it hasn't been Dermott's best week, but I do think this team is different than what we've seen in the past. I think just the emergence of Brody, the fact that they have Muzzin, 
I just have a lot more confidence in this group than, than in years past. As long as, I guess, Freddie bounces back a bit or Campbell's steady, and then as long as Matthew's wrist is okay. So I guess I'm, I'm happier than the average Leafs fan right now. You mind if we take some time to talk about that Riley-Brody pairing? Because they fascinate me. They, I know when TJ Brody signed the contract to come for Toronto, there was some concern of, well, this guy played his whole career with Mark Giordano, so how good is he really? It's hard to know when a player spends so much time with the same partner. There was one year he played without Mark Giordano. I want to say his most common partner was it Mark Stone. You have Travis Hamanick playing with him that year. It didn't go very well. So that made me kind of concerned when they first acquired TJ Brody. I wasn't quite sure what they'd be getting. Watching him closely with Morgan Riley, I didn't realize how good defensively TJ Brody was. I didn't realize how good he would be at taking down the two-on-one passing lane, sliding down, uh, down the middle of the ice and taking away that east-west pass. I think that makes life so much easier on the goaltender. Against Calgary specifically, I know the Daryl Sutter forecheck has been awesome ever since he took over. TJ Brody was able to beat that forecheck with a few slip passes underneath help the team get out of the zone and up the ice easily. Now, I know when you're playing with Morgan Riley, you kind of do need to err on the side of caution because he's a fourth forward out there. He's always going to be activating up into the play. One of the interesting things about that Riley-Brody pairing is that if you look at their five-on-five shot metrics right now, I think they're about break-even. But if you look at any of the shot quality metrics, whether it's scoring chances, expected goals, they look much better in that department. So... I'm hesitant here because I always like it when your top pairing does a better job of outshooting the opposition. And as of right now, that hasn't been their biggest strength, but they are outchancing the opposition. And that's definitely a positive indicator. I think he's been their best defenseman, Brody. Can we agree Ooh. on that? Or? I think Muzzin's no. in the conversation. Muzzin is 100% their best defenseman. But what, this I year, guess what I think it's close. This year, argument, fair. Yeah. Muzzin, Muzzin seems to me, and I know that this is a weak, this is a weak argument, but he has been like this pretty much any time I've ever watched Jake Muzzin in my life. He's a little slow to start each season. And he, you know, he kind of like, he goes through the paces. Like when we were talking about it last week, like he looks a little old at times. Like he is like the true definition of goes through the paces, but like chips on the table. I think Muzzin is definitely their most complete defenseman. He's def- he's I actually think he's better than Brody offensively. Like it actually kind of bothers me that he like Brody for some reason is just given the pure keys to the second power play unit while Jake Muzzin who has like matched him in production in production there uh has actually more goals on the power play in his career there has a better shot than him. Uh can't really seem to get a sniff, but like if Jake Muzzin is walking the line and he winds up a slap shot I'm taking note as a defender. When TJ Brody does it, I just kind of shrug. But the great thing about TJ Brody is that he doesn't do it very often. His shot totals, both at five on five and on the power play, I think he recognizes that he's not a shot threat. So he gets himself open to allow the, the cycle to continue in the offensive zone. One of the cool things about Brody is that a lot of the times when he plays with Riley, Matthews, and Marner, he realizes that he's not the one who's supposed to have the puck. So he'll stay high. He'll stay high on the blue line. He'll, uh, if the play is in the left corner, he'll make himself open on the right boards. He realizes that he's not the best player on the ice. He's not even a top two or top three player on the ice. So he kind of positions himself well to make sure that it benefits his teammates. And that's an aspect of his game that I wasn't sure how well he'd fit in with star talent because sometimes it doesn't work out. But with TJ Brody, so far so good defensively. I don't know about Jake Muzzin quarterbacking PP2, man. I don't know. I, I love okay. Jake Muzzin. I'm a big okay. Jake Muzzin fan, but the, I don't know about that. Okay, let's back up for a bit. Like, I'm happy that TJ Brody understands his place when he's on the ice with like a bunch of really good players. I'm not sure if I'm going to give him much credit for that other than like, hey, I'm the worst player on, this, on our team on the ice right now. Still a good player, but the worst compared to whatever else. But if you look at pretty much like history of production, like Jake Muzzin actually has higher point producing seasons than like when we talk about um, like biases, people just look at Brody and they're like, this guy is a smooth skater. He seems to move the puck well. So people just translate that with power play. But if I actually like look at it, Muzzin is a more dangerous threat. Like he's much better at actually drawing in a defender because you actually have to respect Jake Muzzin. Like it's actually surprised. Like it's, if they're like, we just don't want to waste the minutes on him, like there, I get it. Because he doesn't seem to be a guy that can handle like a huge minute workload, like night in, night out. But that's really the only excuse I'll give them on it. 
Yeah, I Jake think. A, oh, go for it. Go for it, Kevin. I think with I don't find a huge difference between the two on the power play. Like what I like about Brody is just as there's no point shots. He kind of knows the place. I think Muzzin can do it, but I do think they like going Muzzin Hall first shift after the power play. So maybe that's the tiebreaker. But I. I, I think they're both great, and I think what I like about Brody is just, like, if Muzzin got hurt like he did last year, you could always flip him to the left side. He's a left shot and play him with Hall, where last year was just a disaster as soon as, as soon as Jake Muzzin got hurt. And ultimately, this is, like, a small thing, like, who's their second unit power play yeah. quarterback, especially in the playoffs. I mean, second power play unit is probably not going to touch the ice very often. So, speaking of playoffs, two things. We'll get into both. One, if you're going to play a team in the playoffs, first round, who would you want to play? In the Canadian division, this was something you brought up before the podcast started, and I really had to think about it. I warned you guys. I just process of elimination here. I wouldn't want to face Winnipeg because a a hot Connor Hellebuck scares me. And if they're they're a Matias Ekholm away from being a very dangerous team. So I told you, man, I was on this train when they traded for Dubois. I'm I'm welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. Montreal might be your choice, but their ability to control play territorially really scares me, especially in the playoffs. We know that five-on-five shots and scoring chance differential is a better predictor than goals, and Montreal's great in that department. So I think my answer would have to be Edmonton, just because I don't think they can defend. I don't think they can make a save. I think McDavid and Dreisaitl could put up 10 points in a six-game series, but I think you could outscore your problems in that regard. So I think Edmonton would be my choice. What if Calgary made it over... Edmonton in a world let's just say you know what I after watching the Leafs outplay Calgary I feel better as of right now because I wasn't expecting that to happen after watching the Calgary Flames closely in their first couple games under Daryl Sutter after watching them lose to Ottawa I was like yeah and I thought that Calgary would railroad Toronto at five on five I thought their forecheck would be too much to handle and and the Leafs would get stuck in their own end a bit too often that wasn't the case able to effectively break out against the forecheck and create some offense the other way later in the season in the playoffs when things aren't being called as much when Matthew Kachuk's running around elbowing people and not getting called for it maybe it's a different story but Edmonton doesn't scare me whereas a fully loaded Calgary Flames Daryl Sutter team I think there is a bit of opportunity there for them to upset what do you think Kevin who would you pick I don't want to play Montreal. So that's my, I guess, the opposite answer. I think they're, they're such a good five on five team. I think they're just a shooter away from fixing that power play. I know it's been brutal for years, but if they can somehow get the right piece to fix that, that power play, I like Suzuki passing it. And, you know, if Price, obviously, we know the potential. And then Jake Allen's been good too. So if they, as long as they pick the right goalie between the two, I just think that's, that's a team I want to avoid. I think if it's between the Alberta teams, my answer would be one of the Alberta teams, depending on which one makes it. But uh, I do think Edmonton would be fine. Just I would like to see McDavid. And I just think the goaltending's weak. The defense is weak. It'd be kind of the complete opposite of the Columbus series, which would be a, a nice change. We're also used to playing Boston, who just wicked defensively as well. So I just think the opportunity to face Tyson Berry in the playoffs, Mike Smith or, or uh, Koskin in the playoffs, I think that's my answer. But if Calgary's in, I think it's kind of a toss-up for me between those two. Is that NHL point leader among defensemen, Tyson Berry, <laughs> that you're discussing right now? Can't it wait is. to see his next contract. He stinks. I could honestly care less what anybody says. I, I watch Edmonton all the time. I watch the Leafs all the time. I'll say he was good in Colorado. I don't know what happened to his skating. Like He used to be quite dynamic, but for some reason, his skating is shot. I don't want to get into Tyson Berry. Well, make players peak around age 23, 24. And we look at physically, we look at rate stats, we look at production. And then it's when you like, get into your late 20s, it, you're not as fast anymore. But he looked like one of those guys that could like, that was like going to be able to skate forever. Right. And it wasn't like he had some sort of Eric Carlson injury where you go, okay, I get it. I mean, even Patrick Marlowe, only a few years ago, did his skating really fall down i mean that first season with the leafs what did he have 27 goals his skating looked pretty good he was 36 or whatever i mean Tyson those Mary, were into empty nets for what it's worth yeah but he was still okay. good and he was he was a legit player and his skating was definitely above average and he was on the older side of things he just anyways point being edmonton as mike smith it, it's it's a no-brainer there's no conversation to be had the habs concern me 
primarily because they're four lines deep. And that style of play, I do not think lends well against the Leafs, uh, or for in the Leafs' favor, I should say, because the Leafs just load up the top lines. Uh, I think too much, though. I think it's an issue. I've been saying this for forever. Well, you I have think- a Zach Hyman line now. If that's something that you go with consistently, then you would have three lines conceivably. So, so that's, that's actually become a bit of an interesting thing for me because if they insist that Zach Hyman is going to play on the third line, and I totally get why they would, so I'm not suggesting it's a bad idea, you could almost argue that they, they legitimately need two forwards. So you're thinking one for that Tavares Nylander line, which we all know that's what they're trading the asset for. Dubas said, I want to trade a top prospect for the player on that line, basically. We yeah. all know it. It's an but open he, secret. But if Hyman's not on the first line, does he actually really just need to find a guy to play on the first line? Because it's not Thornton Wayne Simmons. not doing it for you there. What if it's Thornton for the first half of the game and then Zach Hyman in the third period? I think that's ridiculous. I don't get the point of that. Like, for yeah. me... I still think they have five top six forwards. And when they play three top six forwards together, the line's good. And then other than that, it's just kind of makeshift. Like Thornton's been good at times, but I just, I can't go into the playoffs trusting that. Like, I don't mind if it's no. a plan B, if there's an injury, you move Thornton up, but. He can't handle the grind. I think that's very Plan clear. A is tough. That's tough. I'm wondering if some age. of that is recency bias though, because he hasn't played well recently. And I think especially in that back-to-back series against Calgary, he couldn't play on the second half of the back-to-back there. Frankly, I don't think he should be playing in any of these back-to-back games. I think part you know of the know I said that is, day one, though. That's not a recency bias. Like, day one, Thornton was on line one, and I was going, okay, this doesn't make much sense. Well, I mean, hot take, a 41-year-old shouldn't be playing in back-to-back situations. You know, I, I don't yeah, think that's, that's what the playoffs is. That's what the playoffs is. You play every, every other, other night day. in the playoffs. Yeah. Okay, you think he can handle every other day? You think in a two-week span, that guy can play seven games? 13, 14 minutes a night, spot duty, offensive zone starts. I think that's how you want to use Thornton because his ability to control play from behind the net in the offensive zone, he can still do it. It's just all the other aspects of his game that I guess that you're worried about. I agree that that's how they should use him. I'm just saying you don't go into it planning that for your first line you don't go and buy an unbelievable car and then put shitty tires on it to finish out the vehicle that's how zach hyman feels on the third line by the way yeah but actually (laughs) i think he kind of likes that line because those guys are grindy pure angle is better than kerfoot there right we all agree seems Mm, pretty obvious i don't know i think i don't think either are ideal in a playoff scenario where you're trying to win a cup but I prefer Engvall to Kerfoot. And I, I think Kerfoot's as good as gone at this point. Engvall in a fishbowl, I don't like him as the 3C, but Engvall flanked by Mikheyev and Zach Hyman. Engvall like. and Mikheyev on the ice at the same time, it's just they're the same player, right? They're this long, lanky, speedy guy that other teams look at and go, what the heck is this? But then all of a sudden he's right on top of you and he's forced to turn over. And now there's a two-on-one the other way and – oh, it didn't go in. It had no chance of going in. But, you know, you get the puck on the other end. And those guys, when they play with Zach Hyman, I think they're still north of 60% expected goals. So is the Matthews-Marner line. It's really just the Tavares-Nylander line that you need to get going here. So is this a good time to transition into the player that we want the Leafs to acquire at the deadline? Because everyone's talking about it. This trade could come in any day. It could come tomorrow. It could come next week. It could come on the last hour of the trade deadline. But we all know the Leafs want to acquire, if not a left winger for that spot, a third line center. Kevin, you're on our show now. Me and Anthony have been talking about this nonstop for the past couple of weeks. Who's your guy? The Leafs make a trade. It shows up on your phone. Who's the guy that you're most excited to see as the Leafs have acquired on the, whoever it is on your, I'm just, I got to know. Okay. It'd have to be someone like a Forsberg or a hurdle where you just steal them. I just don't see it happening, but if those names came up, that's the most exciting. I think in terms of rental, I think Taylor Hall definitely has the most upside. Like, he's won a heart. Um, I think that would be interesting. I just think Granlin's going to be the guy at this point. He can play center wing. He's, he's a good five-on-five player. They don't really need the power play help. I just think he's probably the best value. Like, I, I, he's not going to cost a first-round pick. So, I guess that's the one I most expect. In terms of the ones I'd be most excited about, it'd have to be the, the multi-year guys. No one's really spoken about Hurdle. But he's a really good player. He, yeah. You could put him at center. You could put him on the wing. You could put him pretty much anywhere. 
like he's been a really, really good player at times. He was six two too, so he's not really a small guy, and he's been good in the playoffs. He would be a really interesting acquisition. I'm not really sure what San Jose is doing on the whole. <laughs> they just they look like a mess to me of an organization. That Eric Carlson contract doesn't look great. It's just nothing. They've the Vlasic contract is like Burns. stunning. Burns. At least Burns is still a little bit dynamic. If you like, I've watched a reasonable amount of the West Coast games. Yeah. Um, at least Burns makes stuff happen, but Vlasic is a def- and I love Vlasic in his prime. That guy is a defensive defenseman. He's making seven or eight million dollars a year, whatever it is, long term for a while. He's old. I mean, that team is just old. I feel bad for Logan Couture because that guy still has a ton of good hockey left in him, and it's looks like it's going to get pissed away there. Yeah, that's the worst. I think that's the worst situation in hockey right now. They're going to be bad other, for... Other than Buffalo? I think it's... I'd rather be the GM of Buffalo, I think. Ooh. Yeah, very quickly. What would you do if you were Buffalo? Holy cow. <laughs> I honestly, I don't know. You could almost bend it in your mind to think, okay, do we actually trade Jack Eichel and blow up? Like pure, pure blow up? My gut is no, because I think Jack Eichel's amazing. But you the, might not have a choice. Is there's something be the... wrong there? He's paid. I don't care. He's under contract. I love when teams think that they're getting like crushed by some player who's signed long term. Yeah, I want to get out. I don't care. You're getting paid ten million dollars and you're signed for like six more years. You're playing. I, you know what players in the '90s used to do? They used to just sit out and say, "Okay, I'm not playing until you trade me." Players because do they weren't making anymore. enough money back then. Oh, you saw big but, ticket guys do it and force their way into different cities. Eric Lindros gave everybody a little bit of hope back then. But honestly, if I'm in charge of Buffalo, Jack Eichel's making, what, 10.5? And he goes, I'm going to sit. I go, okay. It's going to get ugly. Like You're not going to get paid money during this time. But that's it. I mean, teams don't call the bluff enough. I mean, I don't want like, to rehash this whole thing, although we've never really spoken about it on this podcast. But truthfully, Dubas should have called Marner's bluff. Marner talked a lot of shit during that negotiation. Oh, and I honestly don't want to relitigate the Mitch Marner contract. Just <laughs> he should have called the bluff out, though. I agree. But again, it, it is what it is at this point. You just kind of have to evaluate it for what it is. It, it's frustrating. It's, it's one of those things. But if we got back to the Leafs uh, side of this thing, when we're looking at players that they want to acquire, there really are two buckets of players. There's the one-year rentals, Taylor Hall, Michael Granlund. I'm trying to think who else comes to mind. Kyle Mary. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. He's another great example. Maybe Foligno. Yep. And then you have the Matias Ackholm, the Philip Forsberg, guys with multiple years of term who would be great to add, but then you're thinking, okay, crap, this is what, a first Sandine? Like, you're thinking this is a price I'm probably not willing to pay? Plus, so you have what, to factor in what are they potentially going to do as a domino effect and lose in the expansion draft. You're probably losing Justin Hall if you add another big ticket forward because you wouldn't be able to go four and four and protect four defensemen. You'd so the deal is not to, face value, right? There's like, yep. sorry to cut you off, not trying. Just it's not just okay. We traded X Y Z and brought in this guy. It's we traded X Y Z and then we gave up this other guy as well in the expansion draft because he pushed him off the roster. So, you know, hey, if they win the cup, moot point, all that crap. But you do have to kind of factor it in a little bit. And also as a very quick aside, it is total garbage that Vegas does not have to participate in this expansion draft. <laughs> uh, it is I mean, a joke, a joke. Lindy Ruff moment right now. <laughs> it, it is. I mean, yeah, Vegas casually one of the best teams in the league. Top five teams. Just, oh, yeah, you guys are new, though. So you don't have to give up anybody. And Vegas just sits there and laughs and goes, great. And they watch every other team around them get a little bit worse, not by choice. Hey, they put themselves in that position by making a lot of smart moves at the expansion draft their first time around. But I hear what you're saying. They, they totally. made a few smart moves and they pulled some stuff right out of their ass. I'm not the, uh, give the Florida them... Panthers situation was complete BS. There's a yeah, few other the Shea ones. Theodore one was embarrassing. Um, just I mean, it was what... either that or Josh Manson. I think they tried to protect Sammy Vatnin at the time, which is funny. that was the thing. And yep. uh, yeah, and Colum- and Florida protected Alex Petrovic, who's somewhere in the A right. And now. gave away Jonathan Marshall and Riley Smith together when they didn't need to do that. The Alex Tuck one was also low key, eh, but Minnesota did, you see did have that a good defense at the time. Did, Minnesota. Did 
Alex Tuck was pretty highly touted at the time, but Minnesota had a really good defense core that they didn't want to touch, which I understood. I get why they did it, right? Because it was Brodeen, Dumba, Suter, and Spurgeon. And, you know, really, it, it wasn't even a terrible, terrible move. It was more just like, this sucks. <laughs> like, right? There were, so there were a few things that they did well, but let's be honest, they pulled some stuff way out of their ass, William Carlson in particular. Just I mean, his shooting out. percentage just went crazy high and no one knew what to do with his contract afterwards. He ended up signing a one-year contract after that season because no one knew what he was. I, They're like, can you do this again? Nate Schmidt, yeah. was, good in, Nate Schmidt was good yeah. in Washington, but I think he was the seventh defenseman in that playoff series against the Leafs. And then, and then Carl Osner got hurt. So we, we spoke about, about that. Yeah, that, that <laughs> literally won Washington the series. It burns my ass to no end. Yeah. If, if Carl Osner Osner, stays in that series, he's playing top minutes and he's he getting outshot. Getting he filled stinks. in. Instead, Nate Schmidt comes into the lineup. He's blowing by the Leafs forecheck and creating rush chances. You know what's funny about Nate Schmidt is he went from the lowest competition or among the lowest competition in the NHL on Washington to the toughest competition in Vegas and actually did a good job alongside Braden McNabb. Obviously, yeah. he's having a bit of trouble in Vancouver this year, but he's a guy I like bringing up and Braden McNabb as well. Shea Theodore is another one who guys who crushed bottom pairing minutes. And then they were given a chance higher in the lineup and they've done well. And this is kind of my Travis Dermott argument. It's been my Vince Dunn argument. It's been my Colin Miller argument in the past. And now I'm starting to get worried that I'm making bad bets on these guys. Am I picking the right guys that are going to do well in the future? Just because sometimes you're right. Sometimes it's an H. Schmidt, it's a Shea Theodore. They move up the lineup and they dominate. Sometimes you you need to watch it too though, right? Because Schmidt, when Schmidt was inserted into that playoff series, he was sick. He was a good one. He was a game changer. You knew right away. You're just like, shit. It's too bad Carl Elsner got hurt. The Leafs would have went to round two. Skating changed that series. The Leafs couldn't attack them the same way because he was out skating the four-track. But I have a different feeling about Travis Dermott, generally speaking, when he moves up. I feel like when they move him up, he could play, he could maybe be a four, right? You sit there and go, okay, with a little bit more responsibility, I think it brings out the best. But like, I don't think he's sick or anything, you know, beyond... Yeah, a little bit, you know, a little bit more responsibility he could handle. He could probably play a little bit higher up a lineup. You know, to be honest, if he if he got claimed by Seattle, probably a great move for his career. And really like the telltale, let's give this guy an opportunity and see what he actually does with it. But I, I, I could see him on a second pair in Seattle with a partner who yeah. could help settle things down. And that line would do really well at five and five. I could see that being a great situation for him. In Toronto yeah. right now, he's on a sheltered pair with Bogosian. We've mentioned how his last couple games haven't looked great, but... At the same time, that pairing, all things considered, has been a strong third pairing at the NHL level. That's nothing to write home about, but there are teams who don't have strong third pairs. And I think it's worth pointing out that they've been effective in that role. Yeah. I like their, I like their defense. I think this is the happiest I've been with their defense in quite some time. I don't know, years, I would say. And that is a really good transition into a new segment that we want to try this week. So... This week, I wrote at the end of Leaf's Notebook, which comes out every Monday, as most people know. Uh, that we people were asking, who don't know, I've been reading this of Anthony's for a while now. He puts a lot of work into these, and these are really good. They, they I, even before I started doing this pod with him, I, I've read them just because it's, you, know, you, you put a lot of thought and effort into those. Sometimes there's some good quotes, some good numbers in there. Sometimes. You know, sometimes. <laughs> I'm not going to lie and tell we, them that all of them are great. We fought yeah, about Tyson know? Berry on the first power play unit last year. I seem we to recall. We did fight about this. Who's a better, Tyson Berry <laughs> or Morgan Riley on the power play? It was a good I feel good about my call on it, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> so we did get some questions. I apologize if we did not get to yours. We did go through them. At some point, we do have to cut off the number, but we really appreciated. Uh, seeing you guys in the comments, I got a number of emails um, and we can just start going through them one by one. I don't know, Ian, if you want to do the honors of uh, reading out the question and, and the username of uh, whoever sent it. Yeah, sure. Here, I'll start off with this one here. This one's from AJ. A uh, question for the podcast. Given that the Buds haven't internally produced an NHL caliber goalie through draft and developing since James Reimer, and then before that, I think Potvin, over a multiple decade period and seeing as how some teams actually always seem to seem to be producing internally decent goaltenders, Nashville, Columbus come to mind. What could the Leafs do to fix this situation? Vaney Vevelainen, baby. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with 
goaltending is one of those tough things that we try to evaluate in sports. It reminds me a bit of running backs in football where you could tell yourself just, oh, let's draft this guy higher instead of drafting a guy in the third or fourth round. What if we drafted a guy in the first or second round? But historically, those players don't perform any better than a third or fourth round goaltending draft pick. So I don't know if using draft equity on a goaltender is the best way to improve that position. I don't know if really piling resources into development is the right way to do it. Frankly, I, I think you just need more lottery tickets. I think grabbing guys like whether it's a Vaney Vevelini, drafting a Joseph Wall in the third round, picking up a goaltender in the sixth or seventh round of every draft, bringing in guys on whether it's a college free agent, it's just one of those that's so tough to project moving forward. I think the more lottery tickets you have, the better. That would be my philosophy. I'm curious if you guys differ. Kevin, I'll, I'll fire it off to you first. I think first and foremost, I probably should have drafted Carter Hart. Like that was one where everyone seemed to want him, And I think that, that was the Korshkov year. So I think they do, if they really want to focus on you know, an internal option, I do think they have to, you know, maybe use the second round pick or more third round picks um, rather than waiting till later in the draft. But I guess the only thing I'll say is you don't necessarily have to have internal options. Like they got, I know Anderson's not having the best year, but they got a heck of a deal on him. And sometimes when you have teams like, you know, the Rangers or Columbus that have multiple goalies, sometimes it's just better, especially if you're in the least position, you know, goalies are going to take four or five years to develop. Sometimes it's just better to, to use the draft capital on someone that can help you, you know, sooner rather than later. So I'm not, you know, I don't necessarily need an internal option, but if you do get some talent like Hart uh, that's, that's available in the second round, I think you got to start, you know, maybe making that position a little bit more of a priority in the future. The expansion draft's coming up shortly, and I know the Leafs have Jack Campbell signed into, uh, under contract next season. So if they acquired another goaltender between now and the expansion draft, they'd have to expose one of those guys. But teams are going to be looking to unload a goalie so that they can get something for him uh, leading into this expansion draft. Is that something that's entered your mind, Anthony, when it comes to how the Leafs might address their starting tandem? Not this season, but for next season? Yeah, depending on how it goes, right? I still think it's a little too soon before I would give any sort of indication of what direction I would go. I, I want to see how the season plays out. Back to the original question on that, because these two things kind of tied together. Toronto's a bit of a goalie graveyard. It really is. The, it's a hard, hard market to be a goalie here. And, you know, we're seeing it right now. In terms now. of drafting and developing or NHL in terms starter? Of, no, in terms of fan pressure, uh, and the scrutiny and the level of it that you get, right? James Reimer here was pretty solid goalie. Pick of him right behind me here. Um, and he, we saw it all the time, right? People were uh, all over him for high glove as if he was the only goalie ever that gets beat high glove, um, right? Like the level of criticism. Remember he had the whole thing with his wife and April Reimer and Alicia Cuthbert because they looked at each other and it, just like the most ridiculous stuff for a goalie, which is already the hardest position to play pretty much any sport quarterback aside. And, you know, just the level of scrutiny that they get. So we're looking at Frederick Anderson right now, who's been actually generally speaking a really solid goalie here in Toronto. And I know it hasn't happened for him in the playoffs here. Be the first one to say it. I'll be the first one to say, I don't fully trust him in the playoffs, but generally speaking, he's been a rock solid goalie here especially his first three seasons and the level of shit this guy's taking now is stunning to me. Like the comments on Twitter, like, I can't even go on Twitter during leaf games anymore when he's playing because it's like any goal that he lets in, you know, the one that went off Muzzin's ass, do you know how hard that is for a goalie to save? Like any last second deflection a, right in front of you. It's, it's difficult. It's a slap shot coming right at him, And then, so you play the shot and it goes off Muzzin's ass and it deflects in such a way that it elevates the height and it goes right over your shoulder. Any I think goalie, the bigger problem is it came right after Chris Tanev beat him clean from the blue line. Yeah. And Hey, I'm not saying he was having a sick game or anything, but you know, the level of comments I was seeing on that, it's like, you know, goalies have to save tips all the stuff any goalie I've ever spoken to in my life is like, if someone tips the puck right in front of you, you have no chance. Like, you just close your eyes. You and just have to hope it hits you. you. It, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're like, the two hardest things to stop are 
a tipped puck right in front of you because you can't react to it. And if someone shoots it like six inches off the ice, far pad, and it's like a perfect shot for rebound, you can't do anything if you're a goalie. If someone beats you on a really nice shot for rebound pass, it's an empty net goal for the guy driving the net. So, but, you know, to the point of it is, I think it's really hard for goalies to develop in this market. I think it's really hard for any prospect to develop in this market. It's easy for a guy like Austin Matthews because he's a legitimate superstar and then comes into the league and throws up 40 goals. But even we saw it with Marner when he had a little bit of a downtick after the contract, we saw it a little bit with Nylander. I think for goalies, it's even more heightened to Kevin's point. Yeah. And to your point earlier, Ian, sure. Would I take a few more gambles? Yes. I think they need to, they clearly haven't, especially higher up in the draft, but ultimately I'm kind of just looking and going sign guys, just sign guys. Like if, if Philip Grubauer leaves Colorado this summer and you're going to tandem him with Jack Campbell, I would feel pretty good about that. Anton Kudobin, anyone in that kind of mold where it's like, sure. oh, can we trust you for about 40 starts, give or take? Yeah, that sounds good to me. And I think yeah. you wait, as Anthony said, I think you wait to see how Campbell plays down the stretch. If he's 920 the rest of the way and he plays well in the playoffs, you're probably going to protect him, especially because he makes under $2 million. Yeah. But if he looks like a backup the rest of the way, then I think they're definitely in a spot where they can go out and trade for a goalie and try to take advantage of that. Potentially losing Campbell in the expansion draft. I don't know if he's someone a team would pick over a Hall or a Dermott. I don't fully trust Jack Campbell to stay healthy. That's my big thing. So I know everyone's ready to give this guy the car keys here, but I I don't know. I'm kind of watching and I'm I'm thinking to myself, they need to keep Freddie engaged. By no means should they be like, okay, we're closing the door here and we're going to Campbell the way I see a lot of the comments sections playing out this way. I see a lot of social media stuff playing out right now. I'm really going, okay. Campbell's never played a full starter's load before. And I think it's one of those things in pro sports. It's so difficult to stay healthy while playing on pace for 50 plus games in a regular season. It's it's very difficult to do. They will a hundred percent need Freddie. And it almost to the point reminds me, speaking of Grubauer is Grubauer started when Washington won the cup, played the first two games against Columbus. They lost. Braden Holpe came in and we know what happened after that. And Braden Matt Holpe, Murray, Marc-Andre Fleury. We, we've seen this with a lot of teams where someone has to come in and have a big game or two. And Braden Holpe, well, Braden Holpe didn't play a game or two. He played the, like the rest of the way. And that was another guy similar to Freddie that was getting shit on quite a bit, had never done it in the playoffs, all this stuff. I'm rooting for Freddie. Before I was kind of, okay, I can't trust this guy in the playoffs anymore. But the level of anger and the negative comments that have come his way have actually flipped me to the other side now where I'm like, I'm really rooting for this guy to come through. I would love nothing more. I know everyone likes Jack Campbell because he seems like a nice guy. Um, and I'm sure that he is, but I was going to say, yeah, he's Freddy. just deceiving us all. <laughs> he's, the big... he's not deceiving us. I think some of it's a little bit weird personally, but that's neither here nor there. It's one of those but, things where it's like, wait, he's too happy. He's too yeah, nice. There's got to be little something bit going much. on here. It's so, you know, I'm not suggesting any, I, I'm not predicting anything from Freddie. I'm just saying I'm rooting for the guy. Same Anyways. here. I'm with you on the Freddie thing on Twitter. Like, if he lets in a few goals, regardless of the, what the goals are, it's going to be the same story. Like, if it's tips. Like, I thought his worst game of the year, or one of them, was the last game against Calgary Yeah, uh, that Friday night. But some of the games, like, he's played well, and the goals have just gone in. Like, I, I think he's gotten very unlucky this year, especially on the, on the penalty kill. Um, like, I, I don't think he's, he's been his best self. I don't think he's 918 Freddie, but – I do think he's better than the save percentage indicates. Maybe, you know. And his five-on-five five numbers have been good. So yeah, the PK solid. save percentage, it doesn't repeat from year to year. So if anything's going to regress to the mean, that PK save percentage, that's coming up. I'm not I, too worried about it. I went back and watched all the, all the goals on the penalty kill, and it's, there's so many fluky goals that just kill your save percentage. Like there was that one where Keith took a bench miner for yelling at the ref. They give up a, a perfect shot on a five-on-three. And that's killing his save percentage. Like, there's, there's plenty of those chances or just tips. Like, he's 6'4". So, it's not like he's a small goalie where, like, you know, if there's a tip that goes in, it just doesn't hit him. Like, he's a big guy. So, I don't – I almost want to take tips out of it. Um, and I just feel like it, – it's almost like people are rooting against him on Twitter right now. I'm, I'm rooting for both goalies. I'd love to see Campbell going like a Biddington-type run. But I, I do think the, the hatred for, for Freddie has been a little bit over the top at times. All right, Anthony, get us set up with another question here. 
All right, question two. And I did get a few emails. So if you, know, if you don't want to put something into the comment section, we get it. Uh, I provide my email address there. It's my lastname.a at gmail.com. Uh, this one comes from Nathan, which was, would love to know what you guys would pay Riley on his next deal, what you pay, and is it enough to make him stay? I have a quick and short answer. I would not pay him on his next deal. <laughs> and I, if I could trade him before that this offseason, I would. But I don't think he's going to be worth his next contract. And it really scares me what he could get based on the points that he puts up. That's fair. Kevin, what do you think? Yeah, I'm with Ian on that. I think we've kind of been on the same page for a while. Like, I do think sometimes he gets underrated right now, like, yeah. because of he is an offense first defenseman. And I think that frustrates some people. But in terms of next contract, I look at what Tory Krug got, and I don't want to give him. I don't want to give him that. So I don't think he'll get enough. more than that because he plays bigger minutes than Tory Krug ever did in Boston. I, I was yeah. looking at all of the the defense cap hits, and that was the one that I had mentioned to you guys before that I had a comparable. Sometimes, so listeners know, I just hide things from people, and then I, you know, I give them a heads up that something's coming, but I don't actually tell he'll them. Tell what. us next but, week. You'll save it till next swear, week to win an argument. Swear yeah. to God, Kevin, that was the one that I saw. I was like. You know, Krug just signed. He is a little bit older than Riley. He doesn't, you know, play the minutes, but that's probably got to be the starting point then, six and a half. Um, you know, this part of it, the logistics of this make no sense, but I kind of wondered looking at it if Riley would look at a guy, you know, like Thomas Shabbat making $8 million. And I totally get that one is way younger than the other and the difference between UFA and RFA. None of this stuff is lost on me. But just the, the sheer fact that he's making $8 million if Morgan Riley looks at that and goes, are you kidding me? You know, See, I'm just worried. If you look at the point totals when it's all said and done and you look at the time on ice, I don't think that's reflective of Riley's true value at five on five. And I think that if you were to pay him, I don't know, $8 million, $9 million on a six, seven year deal. I, I just think the opportunity cost of not spending that money elsewhere where you could get more value from a defenseman at five on five. And I don't even know where that would be. You'd be looking at potentially trading Riley this off season, then looking to fill those, uh, fill, fill that those cap dollars elsewhere. Could you spend that money more efficiently to help you get wins? And I think the answer to that question is yes, even though it means trading or not resigning a leader, someone that you see as, if not a captain, a, you know, primary, an assistant material. This is where the intangibles in the locker room and the, oh, you don't get it because you haven't worked in hockey before. You know, if you were in the organization, you wouldn't want to trade this guy. You wouldn't want to walk away from this guy in free agency. Understanding what all that's worth, I, I still think at the end of the day, this is a business. And I don't like the idea of paying Morgan Riley's next contract. It really frightens me. If they, and they've talked about this a lot, they being Shanahan and Dubas. If they really want to be a winning, sustainable organization, the way that they say, you know, every year we want to be a contender. It's not just about this year. The way they kind of hedge themselves if they don't win at all every year. This is really the first test. If you're going to pay a guy long-term that's 23, there's no conversation to be had here. But R Morgan Riley ain't 23 no more. Right. You know, you might get him playing really well on the first half of that contract, but you're going to, you're going to Brent Seabrook it. You're going to Jonathan quick it. You're going to, you know, if they, well, I mean, God that's forbid, what a Zach Hyman contract's going to look like. You could argue that's what Muzzin I'm, and Brody's contracts might already be. That's, that's my other concern to it is that they already have Brody and Muzzin locked in. And I'm like, man, you're going to lock in another one that's on the backside that would be my biggest issue. That would be my biggest. If we could think, sell high. I think in general, those $7 million defenseman contracts aren't going well. Like Burns, Vlasic, Vlasic's not like Riley, but um, just all those, like Keith Yandel's deal was brutal. Keith Yandel. The Tyson Talk, Berry Jacob, one and the future Tyson Berry one. Jacob Truba, young guy, still sucks. That deal, the Subban one. Yeah. I don't even like the Roman Yossi one. I mean, the best one on the high end of it in the top Didn't 10. Did you win a Norris on that contract? Or yeah, is I it could care less. Just Have started. you watched Nashville play hockey? They stink. Fair point. And Fair like, point. You know, they're paying this guy anyways. Um, the best one on it. It's not his fault that they don't have a center. It's not his fault, but 
Like if you're paying a guy like superstar money and you can't even make the playoffs and the contract just started. Although also John Hines, I have no idea how this guy's a coach in the league. I forget if I said it last week in the podcast or if That's I was another conversation a for another day. How that guy's still <laughs> coaching in this league is stunning to me, but whatever, neither here nor there. The best one in the top 10 is probably John Carlson. Who's been out of his mind offensively for the past few years. Funny, Cause like, he reminds like, me of Riley in that. Gonna, I'm, I'm still not sure if he's as good season, as his point totals. He's probably not, or, but last season he was going to have like a ridiculously productive season. He was like over point per game. He was crushing it. That guy's a minute eater. He's right. Washington kept him. Washington kept TJ Oshi with an eight year deal instead of losing him to free agency. So if you're in a cup window, do you maybe look at those later years at the end of a contract and go, we're not as worried about that. We need to make sure that we keep the asset right now. I get worried because that kind of logic is how you convince yourself into signing Fanuf to a seven-year deal for $7 million. And I know that Riley isn't the same type of defenseman, but anytime you use that logic to justify a signing, how often does that signing end up being, a, you know, you get positive value out of it? The wild thing is, is, On principle, it hurts my heart to even say it. I would almost never consider a winger over a defenseman in the history of this sport. But honestly, when I look, I I think I think they're gonna have they would have a much tougher time replacing what Zach Hyman brings. I know we talked about that previously. I think it would be much harder for them to replace that than what Riley brings. I mean, you could we talked about Tyson Berry, and I laugh and I talk smack about him all the time and all that, which will never change. But, you know, Edmonton signed him for three mil and change. He's leading all D-men in scoring. You could find guys like that and stash them on your third pairing and have them run your top power play unit. And they're I mean, not going to play. Sandine could probably do it next year. I don't think, I don't think Sandine's stepping into the league and throwing up a 60-point season. But Maybe. I think a power can... play one, he's probably going to get 45 plus, I'd say. Yeah, he's he's Schultz got I think he could get four. I think I could get 40 points passing yeah. to the half wall and watching Matthews just like snip ones through traffic. I mean, Nikita but... Zaitsev did it his first year with Marner. Just pass the puck to Marner and good things happen. Yeah, no, I think they can bring in a guy that's productive. I'm saying Morgan Riley is a little bit more than just at times he has totally benefited off of just passing it off to the high wall. But Morgan Riley is legitimately dynamic offensively. We've talked about yes, this. His yes, ability to yeah. keep pucks in with his skating ability, that has big time value. He's, he's good. He sees the ice wall. He's, he's legit. But yeah, I think that they could probably recreate that. I mean, they could, they could money ball that one a little bit. Um, we have a few more questions here. Ian, do you have one up or do you want me to get to the next one? That yeah, I have, I have a question. Up? How are we going to get out of here in under an hour if, if we still haven't got to overreaction, <laughs> quick, underreaction? Quick answers here coming up, but we could save overreaction, underreaction for next week if needed. We could do that. We could do that. All right, we're just mailbagging it today. That works. Yeah, well. we can do that. Um, I had a question. I received a question on what's your take on how important handling the puck is for goalies? And this question was from Mike which is something we don't really talk about too much. I think it's often overrated. Uh, I know that sometimes you'll see a, a, an inferior goalie get the net ahead of a goalie who's making more saves because the coach trusts him to make the breakout passes better. And I'm just always wonder, I'm like, well, how much value can you really create with your passing ability versus if you make that one extra save, that's a whole goal that you prevented for your team. So your ability as a breakout master, you know, it has to be truly elite to be, even worth considering over playing over a goaltender who isn't as good at you at stopping the puck. So uh, Kevin, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I know you like thinking the game pretty uh, hard and well in good detail. I think it's overrated too. I just, I'm a stay in your net kind of guy. I do the bare minimum, but you know, if you're amazing at it, it does help, but I, I, I don't know, like watching Mike Smith, I just get nervous. Yeah. So we actually had a little bit of an experiment on this in, uh, in leafdom uh, years ago. So the Leafs had the aforementioned James Reimer, who sucked at playing the puck. And then they brought in Jonathan Bernier, who was highly touted for it, right? And that was one of the things that the Leafs, you, you guys might recall, uh, they actually spoke about this, like management that summer, like, you know, because everyone was on them about getting buried possession-wise. And, um, you know, you guys were all smoke and mirrors and all this stuff. And one of the things that they were kind of banking on a little bit is they're like, we acquired this puck this puck handling goalie he's going to help us on the breakout because our defense can't make a pass to save their life 
all of these things. And obviously that didn't happen. The Leafs were still the Leafs. So, you know, over the course of an 82 game season, do I think it makes a big difference? No, not really. But the one caveat I will add is in a playoff series, you play things differently. So in the course of a regular season, and we haven't really spoken too much about this, but I think this is a really important thing to understand. And the course of a regular season, you focus on the process and you focus on your team, right? Are we doing the same thing? Are we doing the proper things? Is this stuff repeatable? You know, the way, the way that we're looking right now and we're saying, okay, the Leafs are out playing teams, generally speaking. So, you know, we know at the end of the day that things are going to turn out okay. That's 100% how you focus on the regular season. That is not how you focus on the playoffs. More of a tactical chess match. The, the playoffs is line matching. The playoffs is... Um, who's going up against who and can you win your matchup? You know, you're not looking so much during the regular season. And this one's a little bit more unique because you're only playing the same like six or seven teams, whatever it is. But in the playoffs, like you're literally, you're, you're targeting it. Like this guy sucks. And we're going to, we're going to put it in his corner every, every time. No I mean, think what. of the Leafs when they had the left right imbalance on D against Boston. You could yep. see it in the way that they were forechecking, the way they were dumping the puck into specific corners. They didn't want Riley, Gardner, or Dermott moving the puck. They wanted Hainsey, Zaitsev, and Polak moving Ooh. the puck. Right? That yeah, wasn't a good time. Yeah. Those pairings, ugh. So this is a really important fundamental concept for people to understand. Sometimes I kind of, and maybe I did explain that well just now, but sometimes I kind of struggle with writing it out which is one of the reasons we want to do a podcast where like we can just rip out these things that we're saying um, as opposed to typing up an essay about it. So I do think in that context, in a playoff series that's tight, you could potentially game it a little bit. You definitely could, right? Like you can, you can strategically say like, we're going to, we're going to rim uh, dump ins and we're going to play our four check a certain way where you take advantage of it. And it could actually come into play. Now, I think there are counter adjustments that you can make to that. I think you can shift things around. I don't think that's like if you play a team in the playoffs and their goalie can't handle the puck, you're like, holy shit, we've won this series. We're going to, you know, game this guy to death. But I think you can get a goal or two out of it. And in a tight series, that could make a difference. So I do think there's something to be said for it. I don't think it's the biggest deal. Definitely not to the level of attention that it receives at times. But I do think you could do something about it. Is that fair? Good answer, Anthony. I don't like admitting when you make good points, but that was a very good point there. <laughs> I have my moments, man. Um, I think we had one or two more. Definitely this one I wanted to get to because I did actually have what I considered to, have, to be a good point about this. We'll um, <laughs> you be the judge. But here's the question. And you'll like this one, Ian. So this one comes from Ivan. And it says, given how bad our defensive numbers have been for a very long time now and how historically bad our top minute munching defenseman in particular is defensively, coupled with how amazing our forwards are and how decent our goaltending has been, and there was, you know, a bracket, like generally speaking, shouldn't the Leafs be focusing on improving the defense as the number one priority? And there's also been in there about and looking into trading Morgan Riley, which we just talked about the contract. So I don't want to get into too much, but the overall strategy of acquiring a defenseman over a forward, given the Leafs overall defensive numbers. And I do like that idea. And Matthias Ackholm immediately comes to mind because he's the defenseman who that he's the best one available. He has two years of control and he's on an incredible cap. It was at 3.75 million for a legitimate first pairing defenseman. He's left-handed he mostly plays the left side. It's been said he can play the right side. I always get a bit hesitant on guys like that because um, are you actually going to play his him on the right side? His handling is a little lackluster. And I know, Kevin, you've been watching Nashville a little bit recently too, and you're probably seeing it. Like, he is a little – he is not smooth with the puck. He's not. He's, he's more of the defensive defenseman. I know his numbers suggest he's more of an offensive defenseman, but I definitely see him as more of the – Defensive stay-at-home type. You don't want the puck on his stick. I'm telling you. Like, you I love, live with I it love on Eckholm. his stick. He can make a play with it, but it is, his value is more in what he does without the puck. He's a fantastic yeah. 200-foot impact defenseman over the last few years. Now, those numbers have dipped in the last year or two. Is that something that concerns you if you're potentially trading for him? I mean, maybe. You want to make sure that if you're trading for this guy, are you getting a legit Jake Muzzin type of value here? Or is this the Tyson Berry trade where you're feeling a bit worse, but he's obviously better than Barry. I'm not going to go out on that one. But if you're giving up 
to get an Ekholm, I'd imagine you'd have to give up a Sandine or a prospect of that caliber and a pick. And I don't know what else would go into the trade, but it would be something that most Leafs fans would look at and go, ooh, is, is this something I want to give up? And I think if you're giving up those level of assets, the question here is, should it be a forward or should it be a defenseman? I think long-term, I like this, this reader's question because I think long-term we should be looking at defense a bit more because I think we should be looking beyond Morgan Riley in the next couple of years if, if we're trying to build a proper top four. But at the same time, if you're trying to win a Stanley Cup this season, does bringing in Matthias Ekholm maximize your chances of winning the Stanley Cup versus bringing in a Philip Forsberg or a Taylor Hall or a similarly talented forward? I, th- I think it's, it's difficult because eventually one of those players on the blue line is going to be getting fewer minutes than you'd like to see. I remember this when the Leafs traded for Jake Muzzin. The problem is that Ron Hainsey didn't go down the, the lineup. <laughs> so you had Jake Muzzin was like, he wasn't playing third pair. No one would play the right side. Yeah. That so was stunning it, to me. If you trade for Matias Ekholm, what's the ripple effect? Either Dermot or Bogosian comes out of the lineup conceivably. Uh, so who moves down? Who, who, like, what do you do with the D pairings at that point? It, to me, it wouldn't be ideal, but at the same time, having more talent on the ice improves your chances of winning. So I think it's, it, it, we should probably be discussing defense a bit more often because I know we all are picturing Taylor Hall or whoever it is on that left wing with Nylander and Tavares. But if you can add a legitimately talented defenseman to this team for the next year or two, uh, I think it matters on that back end. Because like you said, I think the blue line is maybe more of a problem than we're willing to admit. But also getting back to Kevin's point, when was the last time we felt this good about a blue line as, as a Leafs team? I don't think you ever have. Yeah, I think for me, the biggest need is still forward in terms of I want someone to play with Tavares Nylander. I want to get that line fixed. And... I, I think Ekholm's good enough that I'd reconsider. And I think maybe Savard I'd have to at least consider. I think they're good enough players where you have to at least say, okay, what's the cost? And I think I would definitely redo the Jake Muzzin trade. If I had a time machine, I'm definitely doing that trade again. So if the, price, if the price is the same as Jake Muzzin and you're confident Ekholm's as good as Jake Muzzin, I'm in. Because I think, you know, you do that trade 10 times out of 10. I, I just think it's it might be a bidding war. I think a lot of teams want Ekholm, and I am happy with these six defensemen right now. So unless they get a real deal on Ekholm, I would probably just you know do the forward route. I do I wouldn't mind adding a seventh defenseman, someone you could sub in. But I think you get the forward first, see how much cap room you have, and then go from there. Like if you have enough for a, say a two million dollar guy, then you make that as kind of your last move. Um, Because I do think more than likely these will be the sixth defensemen come playoff time. Of course, there's always injuries. But I just don't think other teams have, you know, amazing seventh, eighth defensemen. I think the Leafs, I I really like Sandine. I know it's a bit, they're they're young. If they are going to play, I want to get into some regular season games. But I think forward for me is a priority unless you get a a real deal on Ekholm or Savard. So I have a few thoughts on this, as I always do. Um, And it actually goes back a few years ago to baseball. So big Jays fan, of course. A few years ago, the Jays were unbelievable on offense, right? And everyone knew that they needed pitching. And the first thing that they went out and did that trade deadline was trade for Troy Tulowitzki. And they, of course, got rid of Jose Reyes at the time, who was a a reasonable player in and of himself. He certainly wasn't bad, and nobody was really pointing to him being like, get Jose Reyes off the team, whatever the case is, right? Um, And I was confused at the time, too, because I'm like, why are they going in on Troy Tulowitzki? They need pitching, and they did end up getting pitching. But Troy Tulowitzki came here, played one game, which was that Phillies game where he hit two dingers, you may remember. And not because of the two dingers, but the, the defense and the overall stardom that he brought right away. I was like, okay, this is why they traded for Troy, Troy Tulowitzki. Like, I don't care who they had here before. This guy is just a legitimately better player. And that was kind of a light bulb moment for me across any sport where it's like, hey, if you have a chance to upgrade your roster, I don't give a shit if you think that this area is a strength or, you know, we don't need to, we can't improve this further. If there's a player that's better and he improves your odds, you get him. End of story. So that goes across the board. I guess Golden Knights looking at their roster thinking yeah. like, oh, I don't know. Do we need an Alex Petrangelo? It's like, hey, you need good players. Yeah. 
Why not? But when I look at the forwards in particular and people are like, okay, these guys are scoring, they're offensive, they got all this stuff. I'm not looking going, all right, they're good. What are we doing on defense? I'm actually looking going, okay, they actually need to round out this group a little bit better. I think if we're watching, we can clearly see some holes in them. Like very clearly. They got buoyed by four players, five players who are all pretty unreal. Right. But now that they're trying to disperse them across three lines, we're seeing some of the issues that that brings about to your point too, Ian, they do need a defenseman. They're an injury away from literally any one of the guys in the top four to having a problem. Like if one of those guys well, I mean, has a play about a lot of contending yeah, teams, of course you can, but how many teams are contending to the level of the Leafs right now? How many are Leafs cup contender status? So I'd when you're in that 10 teams in the NHL, I would probably say not even that many. Five for sure, but definitely not ten. That Six, are, seven, eight? Yeah, probably around there if we really were to look at it. Remember we did that top ten list teams a few weeks ago? Yeah, we just kind of like, did it off the top of our heads. I'm sure yeah. if we spitballed it right now, we'd, around, we'd end up somewhere that six or seven number. I also feel really bad for the Islanders with the Anders Lee injury. But, you know, if you're, in that, if you're the Leafs and you're in that top category, which they really haven't been since Pat Quinn was trying to trade for everybody. You have to, you have to insulate yourself, whether it's just a depth guy that, you know, makes it look a little better, but honestly, they're one injury away from any one of those guys in the top four. And for most teams, you wouldn't say that for most teams, you'd actually be like, if their top guy or their top two guys go down, like they have a problem. Like if you're looking and you're, you know, if you're Vegas, you're like, if Shea Theodore or Petro gets hurt, we have a serious problem. But as long as those two guys don't get hurt, you could kind of squint and be like, yeah, they'll probably be okay because they have these two monsters and they can basically, one of them will be on at all times. The Leafs don't have those monsters, right? Like they have four They're monsters good guys. Yeah, they have, but on defense, they have four good guys that each have their own strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, the sum of their parts, they're solid. But any one of those guys gets hurt, they have issues on, on defense. I if would Justin not Hall feel gets hurt, what's the ripple effect? Who's the righty? Is Zach Bogosian moving up or is Travis Dermott playing the right side? I think Bogosian goes with Riley. Brody goes on the shutdown. That terrifies me. Right? Things start moving around and they get a little weird really quick. And all these guys start playing with each other who they haven't played with all year in the middle of playoffs when, you know, the lights shine the brightest. I don't know. It doesn't feel great to me. So, yeah, if I could get a guy 100%, but I would definitely target forward over it because they have a hole on first line left wing. They have a hole on second line left wing. As long as Zach Hyman is playing on the third line. And if you think otherwise, you're kidding yourself. I don't know. Joe Thornton, man, those, you see those Corsi numbers. I, I, (laughs) Hey, I love Joe. I just think their fourth line should just be Joe Spezza and Simmons. And you move those guys up once in a while when you need to, but like anything else for those guys, I think they're just asking too much. And I actually have like Simmons on the first line, but that's not real. Yeah, I was gonna it's say you can't real. play Wayne Simmons big minutes on a in a top no. six in a playoff series at this point. I don't like that at all. No, five just, on five. No, on the on the power play, yeah, you like him on the ice. Five on five, I think he needs to be sheltered. I think I just want a needle mover at the deadline first. It's probably gonna be a forward. I just think there's more forwards available, and then. If you have extra cap space, I'm all in for adding a depth defenseman. But I do think you gotta you have to kind of make your bigger move first and then see what's left and, and go from there. At home is good enough that I think you at least have to inquire, but I do think forward's definitely more likely at this point. And I think I would, that's realistic. I would like Honestly, just a depth guy on defense. Yeah. Doesn't even have to be that good, but like a like a body that is semi-respectable. Even a guy like Jason Demers, who I don't really love or even like that much, but at least he's played in the league and a little bit better than what they have. His possession numbers were always awesome, and he was one, someone I wanted to target a few years back. Kind of like, like those. Yeah, Arizona. But honestly, Alex. we should get out of here, guys. We've been talking for over an hour. Kevin, let's let you plug some of your stuff. Where can people check out the great work of Kevin Papetti? Same place as you two right now, Maple Leafs Hot Stove. Um, I'm writing about once a week, a little bit more now just because of the trade deadline, but I'm hoping to be writing a trade piece in the next week or so. I think it's going to be a fun week. I think they're getting close. I'm hoping that they move, for, for I guess from a Leafs fan perspective, I'm hoping they move it to a seven-day 
ex tr uh, quarantine exception. So I am thinking it's going to be, my guess is going to be Granlund. I'll leave you with that. And I think it's going to be soon. So look out at Maple Leafs hot stove. If Granlund's the big fish when this is all said and done, I'm going to be pretty disappointed, but it's starting to look like when you look at just pure value in terms of what you would have to give up to acquire the player, Granlund does seem like someone to me that I wouldn't be shocked if he's in a Leafs uniform when it's all said and done. Anthony, have you got any final thoughts for us before we wrap up here? Yeah, I got somebody better than Granlund. Come on. <laughs> I like I'm in. it. Yeah. I'm in. <laughs> Your boy, Taylor Hall. How about that, Anthony? Not Taylor that. Hall. Not Taylor Hall. <laughs> Anthony think it's loser syndrome. He, he does not believe in Taylor Hall. No, All I right. don't. Yeah, I don't know. He's a whole story. We could do an hour-long podcast on him. We'll be back next week, everyone. Thanks to Kevin for joining us. Um, I do my post-game Leafs report cards on Maple Leafs Hot Stove. Anthony does his weekly Leafs notebook at Maple Leafs Hot Stove. And Kevin will have some fancy numbers and videos on Michael Granlund or whoever it is the Leafs acquire in the next couple of weeks. So look out for that, and we'll be back to talk some Leafs next week. Thanks for sticking around for so long. Talk later. Cheers. You've been listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast. For news, opinion, and analysis, make sure to go to MapleLeafsHotStove.com and join the conversation.